This is the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Hey, brothers and sisters. I have an assignment for you. We're looking for three Nephite stories. If you've had any encounters with the Holy Trio, then we want to hear about it. It doesn't even have to be your encounter. Maybe it was your great Aunt Petunia's. Maybe it was something that happened to your roommate's sister's cousin's boyfriend. It doesn't matter, just so long as it's a story about the three Nephites. You can call it in to us. Our number is 801-906-6722 and leave a voice message of your story. Or you can record your own audio and send it to us at mail at mormonexpression.com. Thanks for the stories. Two more uh, little things before we get started. About 25 minutes or so into the podcast, uh, Zilpha asks Elna about taking speed. Um, for weight loss. Um, what Elna was actually taking was fentramine, which is a prescription drug based on amphetamine um, that a lot of people use for weight loss. It is perfectly legal, although Elna did acquire it in a slightly underhanded way, uh, and it's um, not um, amphetamine or otherwise known as speed, although we refer to it as speed. Secondly, at about... Um, 30 minutes or so into the podcast, you'll notice that uh, the sound quality for Elna changes. We had some audio difficulty, and we called Elna up on her cell phone. So that's why the uh, sound quality changes about then. But other than that, it's a great podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and tonight we're joined by a few of our regular panelists. First, we have Zilpha. Hello. We have Tom. Hey, how's it going, guys? And Jim. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. We have a very special guest tonight. Um, we have the one and only Elna Baker, who is a actress, a comedian, and now author. Elna grew up in, well, all over the world, really. And attended NYU's, is it Tisch School of the Arts? Is that how it's said? Yeah. Um, she is a uh, comedian and a storyteller, and she's performed on This American Life, The Moth, Studio 360, BBC Radio 4, The Upright Citizens Brigade, The Pit, The Magnet, and many other comedy clubs all over New York. Um, she's also written for Ella Magazine, Glamour, Five Dials, and one of my favorites, The Onion. Uh, just recently in October, she published her first book, which is The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, which is a memoir by Elna Baker. Elna, welcome to Mormon Expression. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Well, now we're, we're recording this on November 1st, so uh, we have to get the first and most important question out of the way. Did you go to the dance this year? I did actually go. I, it's funny because in the book, I sort of say like every year I end up going and every year I swear I'll never go again, and every year there's some reason that I go back. And this year I really didn't plan on going back, but then uh, everyone was like, well, you kind of have to go back because you wrote a book about it. <laughs> so then the reason that I went back this year is because I wrote a book about it. <laughs> so I actually, But the funny thing was as I was um, approaching the dance, there's a Barnes & Noble across the street from the temple. And so as I was passing the Barnes & Noble, my book was in the window, which isn't normal. I haven't seen that at other Barnes and Nobles. My book was in the window so that I passed my book as I was going up to the dance. And I was like, wow, it's the same dance, but this year it's a little, little bit <laughs> in the sense that um, I wrote a book about it. So, so how many there knew about the book and knew about you and, and authoring the book? I think, that it, I think that a lot of people who live in New York who are Mormon are being asked uh, if they know me, if they've heard of me, if they've heard of the book, uh, if they know anyone who knows me. So in that sense, I think that um, probably about half the people there have heard about it. They might not know exactly who I am, but um, they've been asked if they do know who I am. Wow. It's so a, El so yeah. Elna, have you been able to do the, don't you know who I am? You're a big celebrity now. It's, uh, I think um, 
I think I'm, it's like a Twilight Zone episode, really, because I'm a celebrity within like a very small group of people. <laughs> so <laughs> anywhere else in the world, nobody would know who I am. But then I'll, I'll go in Los Angeles. I got invited to like some church party and I went and I was trying to figure out how they even knew who I was because I was like, the girl called my phone and I guess she'd just gotten it from the singles directory. So when she said her name and, and was so friendly, I just assumed we'd met and I was forgetful of her name. So I was like, oh, yeah, hey, great to talk to you. And I just faked the whole time like we'd met and we were friends. And then I go to this party at her house and then she says, uh, it's so nice to meet you for the first time. <laughs> I was like, what? We've never met. And I just went to your house. And apparently they did just invite me because they were fans of my work and most of the people there knew me and it was the first time that it ever happened and it was very weird yeah <laughs> so since it's a, a i guess a co it is a costume dance right yes it is yeah so it, what uh what, what costume did you choose this year well i was just doing i was a uh, guest blogging for powell's website which is a bookstore in oregon so i did like a a blog about it and i asked for a uh, different uh, readers to tell me what they thought I should dress as. And the top two picks were um, a Freudian slip uh, <laughs> or um, or green a bowl of green jello. Um, <laughs> so I ended up, well, I was going to go as a Freudian slip, and then it was raining terribly. So I ended up going as the Morton Salt girl because I could carry an umbrella. <laughs> Very nice. I would assume a lot of people feel they they know you because you kind of lay out your soul in your book i mean there's not much hidden there so i mean i got done with a book and i felt like you, you almost were an old friend um mm -hmm. i is that sort of strange to deal with that sort of intimacy with people that you meet now it is a little strange i think that um i think that your ability as a person to write this sort of stuff you're able to do it because it feels very anonymous so like a lot of the things I write in my book, I wouldn't say on like a first date or I wouldn't say, uh, I would say them to my closest friends, uh, but I wouldn't just say them to someone right when I met them. And so what you do when you have your book that you give to someone or they just go out and buy it is right upon first meeting you, they find out everything about you. I think the the only difficulty of that is that the book spans from when I'm pretty much 18 until 26 and a half, 27. And uh, as the piece uh, progresses, sort of the voice uh, that I write in kind of grows up a little. And so people have a tendency to pick me at a certain age and decide that's who I am. Uh, and... For each person, it's different. So they relate or think that they know me, but it's a younger version of me. Uh, and even the person that I am right now is different than the person that ended the book because another year and a half has gone by. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so is it just the Halloween dances that you're going to now, or are you still um, fully participating, going to FHEs and, and all that? Um, I... I'm not as, um, part, I don't participate in the social aspect of Mormonism as much as I did. I think, um, I had a moment, I, uh, I was lucky enough to get an artist residency at, uh, this artist colony, uh, called Yaddo at the beginning of writing my book. And basically you're there with 30 other artists. You, um, are staying in a mansion, there are gardens, and you're, um, every few nights people do performances. And Anyway, I was so happy while I was there, happier than I think I've ever been. And I, after leaving, I felt like, well, it's interesting that there are all these things that I do in my life that I act as though I have to do, as though someone is making me do them, but I'm the one choosing to do them, and they don't actually make me happy. And in that sense, Mormon social activities don't actually make me happy, but I feel as though I have to go to them. And so that was a turning point for me in the sense that um, I stopped feeling like I needed to be around social situations that 
made me feel bad about myself. Right. What is it uh, of LDS social activities that kind of turned you off about it? You know, I will say that uh, first, I guess the disclaimer I should say is that Mormons have been very nice to me, especially I, I was so concerned about the reception of my book by people of the Mormon faith. And perhaps it just hasn't gotten into the more conservative hands yet. So there may be a lot more backlash. But Mormons have been much more generous uh, with my personality than I thought they would. So that's been humbling. But I, I think that uh, in general, I always just felt like at church activities that the discussions that we were having, the games that we were playing, that it all felt very much like we were in middle school or it was like a state of regression. And uh, in people's own discussion of um, religion, uh, religious topics, you know, you'd have a, a girl get up there and say something along the lines of like, you know, I'm trying to be more Christ-like. It just, it, it's so hard because, you know, I will get short with my roommates when they're not clean enough. And like, to me, like that is such a small thing that I would never even consider that that wasn't Christ-like. That'd just be a normal everyday activity for me, getting mad at my roommates for not being clean. So that um, people's own discussion of where they fail in religion is even very censored in such a way as like, oh, it's so hard for me to be religious. I just, um, I just give and I give and I give and I give and I give. And sometimes I can't give as much as I can give. And for me, it's, a lot more severe than that, I guess. The places where I struggle religiously, um, if you were to openly admit them in church, everyone would be concerned for your spiritual welfare in a way that um, I wish they weren't. Like, I wish church was more of a place to go to to help you sort of recharge and then go out into the world and get it all beaten out of you by the end of the week, which is what usually happens to me, but then be able to go back in and say, I was taught this and this and this at church, but in the real world, this aspect of it doesn't hold up. And I want to know why. That's where I think the brilliance of your book really played out for me. I think the kind of struggles that you laid bare in the book, especially those dealing with sexuality, are things that every person is dealing with. But like you're saying, there's no space for them in church, and it's it's like we all had to pretend that that wasn't happening. You know, your, your example, you had to pick little petty things. But meanwhile, everybody was struggling with these big issues of their, their own sexuality, their own relationships, their bigger place in the world. And I think that you kind of broke through in terms of laying that out and showing this is what normal people deal with. Mm -hmm. John and I were talking earlier this afternoon about that. And how, um, you know, a lot of the things that you described in your book sound middle schoolish. And it reminds me of, um, you know, of when you're dealing with, with the Mormons and, and trying to live the Mormon way, lifestyle kind of culturally. Um, it, it, it is kind of middle schoolish. And I, I think I just kind of realized that this afternoon. So nice. Kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, I find, um, I think what, in fact, I brought a, a friend from, from NYU once came with me to a Mormon social activity and she's a very outspoken person. And, uh, right when we got there, she was really quiet and, um, seemed kind of uncomfortable. And I thought maybe it was because, you know, she was in a church setting, but then right when we left, she was like, Oh, I don't know what happened to me in there. But like the minute we walked in that room, I, I was like, why did I wear this outfit? What's wrong with my hair? Why am I not prettier? And she was like, it's just the whole feeling of the place is that like people are all looking at you in a particular way. And it was so reassuring to hear that because I think a lot of times I'll be in these church, you know, like where it's like a taco soup party and you go to the taco soup party and one after another, every conversation you have feels so awkward. And like it, you know, and then you're like, is really like, is this what my mother went through 20 hours of labor to produce this person who is like, how have I lived this long and not figured out how to have just a standard conversation? <laughs> and then, and then I'll leave, you know, and be walking down the street, just sort of 
doing that downward spiral of like, what's wrong with me? Why did that feel so terrible? And then a friend will call and I'll, uh, you know, spew on the phone and we'll be laughing and, and happy and things. Will, then all of a sudden I'll realize I'll be like, oh, my gosh, it's not me. It's them or, you know, the collective. It's it's that situation. And I don't need to feel like there's something wrong with me because uh, in these contrived situations, I don't do well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can sympathize directly with that. I mean, from my experience, you know, when I was before I was married in the singles ward and we'd go to, to the family home evening uh, groups uh, that, you know, we were selected, you know, randomly for. And, you know, to go and, and talk with these individuals was so straining because it, it felt contrived and it felt like you always had this this very specific fence of conversation that you could stay in. And mm-hmm. as soon as you stepped out of that, you were you were labeled as, you know, not part of the group and you were you were made uncomfortable. It was a very uncomfortable situation. So yeah, I can de- definitely relate to to what you're describing. Yeah, and you would go around with a smile on all the time, even though that was probably not the way you were feeling inside, because you don't you don't lay out any of your problems or your bigger issues. It's just all a smile and everything. You know, you're you're spiritual and everything's going great for you. You're on the right path. Well, you know, what I think is really interesting is that like. New York City, one of the things I love about living here, um, and again, I live within like a certain aspect of New York. I live in the East Village. Most of my friends are other aspiring artists. And so I'm within a community that is very much um, anyone can be anything that they want to be. Anything goes. I mean, you. I've seen, I literally saw a man in a tutu sort of, do the the moonwalk backwards through traffic and no one even like blinked an eye. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is here. Yeah, that's and, the village, all right. <laughs> you know, and it's just um, it's a such a wonderful environment to live in. And even you know, I, I went out to Los Angeles and tried to live there for a few months, and it wasn't until I actually went out one night because uh, I kept going to you know events or parties there, and I was like, oh, I. I don't know why I've ended up at another douchey party. Like everything I went to was like some networking event or it also made me feel awkward. And then I went out to a gay bar one night that some friends had invited me to. And I immediately felt so comfortable, so accepted. And I think it's because, uh, you know, you're within a group of people uh, who has not been accepted. And so that when they have the chance to, you know, create their own, a place to hang out or whatever, it becomes a place where you can be who you are and it doesn't matter. And I think that uh, the challenge I feel at church is that everyone is striving to be perfect. Uh, and in that, in that sense, uh, there isn't that same acceptance or allowance uh, for people to not be perfect. Do you, do you, Elna, do you think that the, uh, the Mormon church is pretty much the same everywhere you've gone? You've gone and lived in so many places. I'm just curious as to what your opinion is towards that. Is it the same? Is the culture the same just about everywhere? Even, even when, I guess you lived in Utah County in Provo for a little while. Was Very briefly. But yeah, I did live there. Um, and no, it's not, it's not been the same. And actually, I think that part of the reason that I am, um, you know, have have been able to try to continue to stay Mormon is because of the foundation I had in the church as as a child. Because I grew up in um, in Madrid, we were a very small congregation, um, and most of the members were new converts. Uh, the missionaries encountered uh, some Nigerian refugees who were living under a bridge. They invited them to church. One Sunday, uh, 30 Nigerian refugees showed up at church, and our congregation ended up being half Nigerian refugees, half expats. And it was a very, um, it was based on the fundamentals of the teachings of Jesus Christ in the sense that it was, look, none of us really know how to make this work. We're trying. 
Uh, and since we are all very different than each other, uh, we're going to just stick to the simplest things. Uh, and so in that sense, I really felt uh, like church was about those things that, you know, whether you're a sentiment, even if you try not to be sentimental, when you see somebody, when you see someone's life change uh, as a result of, um, you know, joining the church or even just like fellowshiped or somebody just doing something good for them, like helping them go from living under a bridge to having an apartment that they can live in. You see how their lives are changed or how their hearts are touched. And uh, it's, it's a moving experience. Uh, and so then you associate and, you know, I've had conversations with friends about, you know, I think that what I'm drawn to within Mormonism is the notions of truth and light and love and charity. And because I was taught those under Mormonism, I feel an obligation to continue to be Mormon out of my own obligation to those principles, but that perhaps those are just universal truths. And, you know, if I let go of Mormonism, that doesn't mean I let go of those things. You don't, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Elna, to me, in the book, you had um, a boyfriend um, who you named Matt, who mm-hmm. was an atheist. And um, I found your dialogue and your conversations with him um, most interesting, partly because personally, as someone who used to be a, a Mormon is now an atheist or an agnostic, at least, um, peering in on your conversations was like a, a conversations with myself. Um, I could see where you were coming from and I could see where he was coming from. But that relationship obviously changed you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes. I um, I was working as a page at the Letterman show, and he was just a guy waiting in line to see the show. And um, I saw him and immediately felt like there was something special about him and went and talked to him. And then it's, it is strange that um, I think sometimes we seek people out to kind of be the catalyst for a lot of the questions that we ultimately want to ask. But then, you know, you should give credit where credit's due, which is that they're also incredible people or there's something about them that draws you to them separate than your own need to ask those questions. Uh, but he um, he and I dated uh, briefly for like about four months altogether, um, and we broke up ultimately because I was um, at that point in my life much more um, diligent in the way that I saw my life uh, sort of unfolding and that I believed I did need to get married in a Mormon temple and uh, that um, ultimately if this was truth, then he could be able to see that it was truth and uh, in some ways that that would make it true for me. And so I think that uh, what is communicated in that story is – a lot of it is also my own really just earnest desire for him to be able to find out that God exists so that I can know that God exists. So when, when he earnestly started to pray and he didn't come up with the answer you expected, how did that change your, your faith? It was, uh, I think, uh, I mean, and that was that happened at the time that essentially it was double whammy. It was that answer, and we broke up so that I had uh, I didn't have kind of a firm setting with my faith to cling to, and I also didn't have a relationship to cling to. And then it was very much like, you know, in the moment I made all these choices, I said, I can't have sex, you need to pray. And uh, I acted very much on impulse, and then all of a sudden I was left with the consequences of that, and it was like post-traumatic stress. I was like, what did I do? (laughs) Oops. Yeah, it was terrible. I was so, so torn up about it. And um, and then going to church each Sunday only made it worse because it was like, you know, you're sitting in a hard wooden pew eating like stale sacrament bread, and you're like, this? This is what I gave up? the love of my life for. <laughs> um, and, um, and I, I, you know, I think that uh, I made the best decision I could have at the time based on who I was at the time. I think that uh, if it happened now, I, I don't know 
if I would have made the same choices. But I think that um, I'm happy that I made those choices in the way that they um, got me a book deal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the way that they like help, uh, they helped really. I mean, I think one of the things I do appreciate about Mormonism, and again, like it's hard because in retrospect, it's so easy to rationalize things to be like, oh, well, that happened for a reason. My mother's one of those people. Everything always have for a reason Mm -hmm. which I think like is on par with thinking like an insane person (laughs) (laughs) if everything literally happens for a reason that's crazy um but uh I uh I do feel like I learned from I've always learned from the things that I've had to give up more than if I just uh caved into the pressures uh that I felt socially or even from my own, you know, sense of curiosity. Didn't that experience and and even later on in your book you said that you even went and tried to rekindle your relationship with with your atheist boyfriend later. Mm-hmm. And didn't that experience just kind of reshape or redesign your your relationship with the with the Mormon church or your belief system or even your beliefs with God? And how did you how did you restructure that, and how did you pull out of it as still as a faithful Mormon and everything? And again, it, it's it's interesting. You're like the story is about, but really, it's your life. So the themes that I've noticed in my own life uh, are is that of overcorrecting. It's uh, it's as though like I'll feel guilty about an action that I've taken, and so I'll overcorrect to being as Mormon as I can possibly be. And then I'll feel incredibly stifled. And so then I'll overcorrect and try to, you know, take, you know, dip my feet in the water or whatnot of actions that are told will be, um, sort of my own destruction or whatnot. And then I'll, I'll get scared and I'll overcorrect the other way to being Mormon again. Um, and I think that I really did earnestly want to have what I call in the book a point of no return, which is like a moment where you can say, this is the truth. I know it is the truth. And, you know, it happened today when I was 24. And for the rest of my life, I'll never question this day. Uh, and I'll get small questions and they'll they'll make me wonder. But ultimately, like, I won't have to reevaluate every aspect of my testimony because I'll have a foundation. And I've had a really hard time being able to hold on to that foundation because I still encounter new things that make me question everything. Do you mind if you uh, switch topics a little bit to your weight loss? Oh, yeah, no problem. So when when you found out you were taking speed, which was the catalyst for the weight loss, um, and then you've obviously been able to to keep off the weight. I mean, as far as I could see from looking at your um, Facebook videos, is that true? Have you been able to keep the weight off without speed? I have, yeah. How how is that possible? I mean, it seems like you were like doing everything you could to to get you know to keep the weight off with the help of speed. So, you know, I'm just wondering how, how you do it. Uh, it's, it's, it's never ending. (laughs) I mean, it's something that I have to always, um, be aware of. And, you know, when I was heavy, I wanted a do over and I really did lose weight fast. And, you know, it kind of, there was a tremendous amount of, work done to that but it is a do-over but it wasn't the kind of do-over that I thought it would be in the sense that like I thought I could just be thin one day and that I would suddenly get to be that person and instead in order to be thin I have to be so aware of what I'm eating and um, you know it's easy to tell yourself when you're with other people where you're like oh well that person's thin and they're eating this I can eat this too but um (laughs) Then you start doing that and you put weight back on. And so I try to stay within a, a five-pound range where if I get five pounds heavier, then I 
like really freak out <laughs> and take off that five pounds. And then, uh, you know, I'm happy again. And then it starts to creep up and I freak out and I have to take off that five pounds. And it, it fluctuates like that every several months. But ultimately, I'm only with five pounds and not 80 or 100. So, Elna, how much do you think the um, your dating activities and your pursuit of uh of of love and all that was influenced by the new person you found as a, as a as a thin, you know, attractive woman out on the scene, as opposed to the the dichotomy between New York and Mormonism. Uh, I think when it, you know, I was tempted to not include the weight loss stuff into the book because you know I was like, well, it, you know, this is ultimately a story about uh, the dichotomy dichotomy between New York and Mormonism, and yet the weight loss is was central in the sense that um. I had always wanted to fall in love. I'd always wanted guys to like me. I was always overweight, and so they didn't. And then um, when I finally lost weight, suddenly they did like me. And instead of coming from like a neutral place, I said, like, guys like me. That's nice. I was coming from a deficit, which was like, what? Guys like me? Oh, my goodness. Hurry. Grab every opportunity that you can. Um, and uh, so I... It meant so much to me, and yet I couldn't um, completely pursue it because in order to have those relationships available to me, uh, I sort of did need to sleep with guys or at least, um, I think, at least have, not it's something you have to immediately, but to have it completely off the table, I'm not going to have sex until after marriage, is... Uh, is an unrealistic approach in this city, I think. It seemed like the weight loss was kind of a catalyst for opening that door to all this temptation and problems that all of a sudden there was guys at your door and now you're faced with the real opportunity of losing your uh, chastity. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that um, for me, like I think that everyone has their own sort of um, – their own personal moral compass that sort of fits with like, you know, like I think my older sister, just what she wants from life and how she likes things explained to her really do fit with the teachings of the church and always have. And, um, I have always struggled with that. And yet like ultimately, you know, the word of wisdom, there are a lot of calories in alcohol I can handle not drinking <laughs> or like, I, agree. I just, yeah, I mean, yeah, why go so a there? lot of the things, a lot of the things that like, I'm not supposed to do, I don't really want to do. I don't care too much about. Uh, and the only thing that I do definitely want to do that I'm not supposed to, uh, involves the law of chastity. And so it was the first time that I, um, had to make a sacrifice, uh, or had to be obedient in a way that I didn't necessarily even feel felt as though it was that important. Here's a question. Um, and feel free to not answer this if you don't want, but did you ever have the, uh, a time where you went into church and the Bishop came up to you and said, no, sister Baker, I need to sit you down. I just got done reading your book. It seems that you've got a few uh, offensive words in there. It seems like there's something you may want to tell me, uh, something about uh, men, men's uh, or male genitalia. <laughs> did you ever? <laughs> Don't forget about ever, masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> did did you uh, did you ever get hauled in for the book? Um, I haven't gotten hauled in for the book. I mean, truthfully, I've had I've been on like a like sort of I go to the bishop all the time. <laughs> I, like I'm open with my bishop. I'm trying to do what's right, but I'm also struggling. And so like, he's totally up to date on everything. So it's not as though I were keeping these things from him uh, and then wrote about them. It's more like, he's like, Oh, and, and you're writing about this stuff too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things uh, my bishop said to me once was um, uh, I went in, you know, cause I, it was like every, every guy I dated, I would, struggle with the law of chastity, repent, you know, not go out for a little while and then like 
good behavior would come. Like, you know, I get credit for good behavior, but really I hadn't been presented with the situation to not be good. <laughs> and then I'd be presented with the situation and then have to go to the bishop again. Um, so it was like that. And then finally I started dating a Mormon. Uh, and so I went into the bishop and I was like, Bishop, I'm finally dating a Mormon. And his response was, really? What's her, <laughs> what's, what's, uh, he said, really? What's her name? <laughs> Which oh. I thought was really funny. <laughs> this is uh, going to sound kind of tongue in cheek, but do you think your, your book will end or ever end up in Deseret Book or do you think it's a little no. too edgy for that? It's way too edgy for that. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, it, that'll that'll be the last thing that ever happens. It, it kind of a follow up to that, I and mean, this is kind of an inside baseball kind of a question. But the the kind of Deseret book set of authors and uh, and novelists that uh, kind of feed into that that whole cultural kind of bookstore. How separate are they from from the main literary community, and it, 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 how, I guess, how different are they from from uh, I guess the, the mainstream? It's very different. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I mean, I don't actually. I don't read most of the books that come out of, uh, or I don't think I've really read very many of them. But I think for the most part, um, a lot of their books are written. Uh, with a lot of assumptions. Uh, they're written with the assumption that everyone shares the same values and that everyone wants, you know, similar things and that, uh, that people know what you mean when you reference, you know, some sort of thing that is culturally Mormon. Whereas, so uh, they would be writing, I guess, for the Mormon culture, whereas you definitely. wrote more for, for a very more widespread audience. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it's interesting, and I'm obviously very, very grateful fact that Mormons follow me and that they're fans and that they do buy my book. Um, but I uh, didn't set out to write a book for Mormons. I set out to write a book for people who um, who I felt like I misunderstood at least my own relationship to Mormonism or my own position of being a, a Mormon. And I felt like that there were other Mormons who sort of opted in that same niche that I was in. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Elna, you've kind of, you, you, you honed your craft in the nightclubs where obviously there weren't a lot of Mormons there. And, um, you know, you're saying your, your primary audience is not necessarily a Mormon audience. That, I think that kind of makes you an unofficial spokesman for Mormondom, at least in the, in the village and in New York. What sort of things do you have to set straight all the time? Uh, well, I think um, uh, that we're not polygamous. It's surprising to me how many people still think that Mormons uh, are, that they mix up fundamentalist Mormons and Mormons. Uh, I think uh, also that uh, uh, that all Mormons are Republicans, uh, that we're all from Utah. I mean, I still have friends who've known me for years, and when I say I'm going home for Christmas, they say, uh, oh, Salt Lake? <laughs> I'm like, I've never lived, I'm not from Salt Lake. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's also, you know, there's been friendships that I've had, um, where I haven't found out till later that, you know, a friend you know, who's gay has said, well, I honestly, the first time I met you, I, you know, thought, well, don't even bother trying to be friends with this person because she's not going to like me. And I couldn't fundamentally be friends with somebody who disapproved of my way of life. And um, so I think that that uh, gay or straight, I think a lot of people, um, Mormons are going to be judgmental of uh, their lifestyle because uh, they believe that Mormons are um, very strict and wouldn't want to be around other people who shared different values. Don't you think that in general that that is true? Well, I am I am constantly surprised by um, and yet like the more I think about it, I'm like, well, I guess that does make things a lot easier. But I am constantly surprised by the fact that um, the Mormons who I know who live out in the city, a lot of them just hang out with other Mormons, go to church, go to uh, social activities sponsored by the church, 
have dessert parties at people's houses. All their friends are Mormon. And they go to work and they interact with these people at work. But it's as though um, workers are on the outside. So it's as though this minority is, uh, you know, it's the same. I always think anyone will say, refer to people who aren't Mormon as non-members. Because it's like a minority uh, defining uh, the majority as the minority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, there's definitely that way of. I, I one time I wrote it down like Monday through Sunday, what uh, was offered to me socially from church, and I discovered that I could have just spent the entire week only interacting with other members of my faith. Um, and yet, you know. Uh, I think that uh I think the book I write about this philosophy of just saying yes and being open to what's in front of you. And when you are living in New York and you try to do that, um, you know, be careful what you wish for, I guess, because what's open and if you're actually present and taking the opportunities that are given to you in terms of really insightful or interesting people that you can meet, uh it's limited to yourself to only being around other members of your faith. And then you're shutting off all these opportunities to learn uh, in the place that you are. Now, early in the book, if I remember right, you make kind of a throwaway comment about there being a certain number of Mormons in New York and then something like 20,000 ex-Mormons. Did I remember that yeah, correctly? Yeah, it's probably higher than that. So do you meet or interact with a lot of ex-Mormons in New York? Yeah, it's funny. I just I just interacted with one t- today. I um, needed to, to film sketch video thing and we were using this bar that's by my house and the um and the bartender uh grew up mormon and her brother also bartends and she was saying how she has friends who and then they she was like oh you know i never really think about the church but we did mushrooms the other night and someone had a joseph smith hallucination <laughs> like, oh, oh. So, wow <laughs> so yeah i definitely uh well, and, and, you know, every time I meet somebody who um, who used to be Mormon, there's like a kinship there immediately. Right. Um, and it, it's funny, how you pointed out that when you heard the dialogue between the atheist and me, um, you could relate to both of them. I think what is interesting to me about that, too, is that I can relate to both of them. I, I, I equally believe both of those things inside of me at the same time, so that I'm full of these contradictory beliefs and I struggle knowing which uh, one to choose and so that when I meet people who used to be Mormon I feel like I immediately just uh, it's like you, your eyes link up or whatnot and and you can say like oh do you remember the young women's theme and you know, <laughs> she'll be like oh my gosh and these things that you were sort of um, that you had to sit through or we're through, um, and uh, and then there are also these positive aspects that you know they'll talk about that they miss about the church, and those are often the things that I still get from church or why I still go um, are the things that they feel like they miss, and then the things that they couldn't stand are usually the things I can't stand. So. Yeah, you have a really great paragraph. I think on the um, last page of the book, you say. I've spent a decade saying yes to both sides, stalling and questioning, not ready to choose and watch my life become simpler and more ordinary, only without de- definite or definable values, I'm a genuine indeterminate. I am what I might be, not what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the sort of theme I got through the book and, and the, the transition is these two, these two worlds that, that you're in. And, you know, like I said earlier, I, I think that really speaks to the world that most Mormons are in, although they go to church for some reason and pretend they're not there. But I, I really think you're speaking for the experience that most people have. Well, I, you know, I, I think that um, I've always been really, uh, I guess, torn by the philosophy of uh, be in the world but not of the world, uh, because I feel like it's very hard for me to be in the world uh, and not become of the world because ultimately what happens is you start to care about things and, uh, you, you know, meet people who have different values than you and you, uh, you know, personally relate to them and then 
you know, uh, your church will uh, either take action or, um, you know, you'll be taught something in church. Uh, on on the more extreme, the church takes action. On the, you know, smaller extreme, or on the you know, smaller level, uh, you're just taught in church about how wrong something is, and yet you have empathy. And, um, you know, I've had leaders say, well, that's why, like, you should, you know, trust in the prophet or trust in um, the apostles is, you know, uh, they can, you know, see a situation uh, from the watchtower from above and they're not so involved. And sometimes when you're too involved in the situation, it's harder for you to see clearly. And, you know, I grapple with, you know, possibly that is true. And the other side is like, thinks, well, how can uh, you see clearly if you're further away? I think that people don't think that Mormons are neurotic. They think, you know, like, they're like, oh, uh, Jews, like, that religion really does uh, foster people becoming neurotic experience. <laughs> I don't think I realized I was neurotic until I, I have gotten older and I realized that um, those things that I've been taught through Mormonism uh, and the things that I've been taught uh, from the outside world, I can have a debate with myself back and forth very complicated debate where I, you know, back things up one way or the other. So, you know, uh, I'll, I'll find myself in like social situations, like not out loud to other people, but, you know, I'll have doubt about something and I've just had some, you know, testimony building experience. And I'm like, well, you're, you're very much like Layman and Lemuel. Of course you're going to doubt because you, you know, not, not, there's no such thing as enough, and then I'll shoot back with something else and, and always be using, you know, because I I mean, the entire time I wrote my book, I made it a point to read my scriptures every morning and to doubt on a note card, you know, a scripture that inspired me for that day, and I would put those up in my studio where I was working because I felt like um, I needed to be close to that source as I was writing this um, in the same way that I needed to also uh, during that time kind of take a step back from it and allow myself to make choices that weren't uh, quite so Mormon so that I could see it from above. I, I really felt like at the point in my life when I was writing this book, it was the only time that I could have written it because so much of my life was uncertain and is still uncertain. Well, yeah, I, I have to say the book sort of just ends. Um, I, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. You can see that, that you're going through this transition in life. And then I think you begin the last chapter saying this is where the book was supposed to end. And then you go on and talk about what you did with your advance. And um, another interesting layer gets peeled away. And um, I, I know I'm, I was left at the end of the book wanting to know what happens next, but you can't really say because it's pretty close to present, I guess. It is, yeah. And, and you're like, what happens next is I don't do anything, and I sit around <laughs> and write a book. Nothing <laughs> happens. <laughs> so that's why that chapter isn't in there, because it's really boring. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, but yeah, it's it's funny. I think um, I uh, uh, there's another Mormon website that I take an interest in the book, and um, they write about how they wish... I had ended it at the chapter before the last chapter, but then it would have had a happy ending. Um, and no, I actually, no, 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 I don't think so. Yeah, yeah well, and it's funny because I don't think that either. But then um, I think that I, I can see, and I remember reading that and I was like, well, maybe, maybe that was a mistake. Who knows? But I, I, I think that true. And I think that so often, you know, not even in Mormonism, just in our cultural and in, in general the need for stories that have happy endings when that doesn't speak to life where like you, you know, you go outside and it's raining and uh, you turn on the news and it's like, there's a storm and you know, it's uh it's snowing and you're like, no, that's not what I feel though. So how can these two things line up? And uh, I do think that we're entering an age uh, where people are trying to, fight to just have those two things line up and to say, you know, uh, be honest about their own experience with things. And um, so that's why I included the last chapter. 
And the way I ended the last chapter, I um, was really tormented during that period of writing the book because I felt like I was going to end making a choice. And I always felt like I would end my book by making a choice. And then I got to the last page and I wasn't fundamentally a different person just because I got to that last page. And so I would end it by saying that I was Mormon and not feel right about it. And then I would end it by saying that I was deciding that I was going to take a step back from this and not be Mormon. And that also didn't feel right. Um, And so uh, um, actually Ira Glass from This American Life uh, helped me uh, specifically on the ending of the book. Uh, And I was very thankful for having somebody sort of give you permission to be honest with the place that you're actually in. Well, I have to say it's, it spoke a lot to me because I, I went through a similar thing where probably about eight years ago, I'm a little bit ahead of you in the journey, I suppose. Um, I came to the same conclusion that I wouldn't have to make the choice. Um, and I would let the kind of wave take me where it did. And for good or for bad, I, it took me where it did. But I think I lived a lot happier after I made that decision to not necessarily decide. So it was something that really resonated with me. And I... I I also want to uh, state for the record, Elna, that I, I read through your entire book. I mean, I kind of felt like I needed to take a bath to get some of the estrogen off me, but I loved it. <laughs> I, I even I even uh, skipped part of a football game to read it. So, and I I I really do applaud you for putting yourself out there. I mean, I mean, I shed tears with you, and I can't. I was just amazed at how courageous you were by putting your heart out there in this book. I really do encourage everybody that's listening to this podcast to get out there and read it and buy it. It's a phenomenal book. So I appreciate you coming on with us, Elna. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, the, we were uh, skirting about this a minute ago. Um, you can see as you write the book the stages of faith you go through and the stages of life and how that's sort of shaping your personality. How did the actual writing and publishing of the book impact your faith? It sort of functioned on two levels that were very like it was the darkest and the brightest at the same time I think because I um you know I think a lot of things happen to you in life in general and it really did teach me how little time we give to like processing the things that have happened and that everything you needed to know was actually there in those moments but you chose to see what you wanted to see and you know to be able to look at your own choices that you thought you were making for you know a genuine reason and to see that there were other influences, pressures that you were experiencing at that time that because you never really looked at it from above. And when you write something and spend so much time writing, it, you, you begin to see it from above in a way that uh, shows you things about yourself that sometimes you don't want to see. Uh, and, um, and I also felt like I am... Um, you know, I relied so heavily on prayer during that period of my life. So it was a faith-building experience in that I, I felt like I earnestly was just asking God to help me figure out how to do this thing because I got an opportunity in my mind just by bluffing, by saying, you know, I, I really I have something to say. I promise. I promise. I can do this. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And then I got the chance, and then all of a sudden, you feel this enormous pressure because what if you don't really have something to say and and what if it isn't great and what if you're all talk and uh, that pressure stays with you the entire time so that you're not even capable of sitting down and watching TV or relaxing because at any moment you could be writing. And so you spend a lot of time, whether you're actually sitting in front of a computer, you're thinking about this material all the time. And, um, and that, I think, also led me to just think about my own relationship to faith, my, my own relationship to my family, um, and uh, and to the different guys that I've dated or, or loved. Um, and uh, I, I think that um, then you know, towards the end, I was actually very um, close to missing my deadline, and uh, it got to the you know, crunch times where it was the last weekend. And if I didn't get it in by Monday, they would have to hold the publishing date until this 
in which case it would not be a timely Halloween release. <laughs> so I am. Um, I had a weekend where I just really felt like it was that moment where you're like, is this book going to break me or am I going to break it? And um, I really very nearly felt like it was just going to totally break me. And then when I made it to the other side of that feeling, I've never felt um, more. It's like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you really do feel like you did something that you spent so much time being afraid that you couldn't do and then you don't know how you did it and in that sense um you do feel like an outside source has helped you you know and and um and I, I had a mentor tell me that um you know I asked her how her faith was she used to ask me about my faith a lot and she said that um faith was stronger than ever in the power of the human spirit and just that our own ability to be so much more than we realize we could be and that perhaps that's why we need um, this role model of Jesus or why we need God is because we're ultimately um, afraid of recognizing the God within ourselves. Um, and that's not to discredit my own belief that I, that there was a higher power helping me, but I also feel like um, I learned um, a lot about uh, what I could be capable of if if I relied or trusted, whether it be like a creative voice inside you or or inspiration coming from God uh, or just, you know, the, the artistic process. Going uh, from artistic process, when you did put pen to paper, was there anything specific that you'd like to talk about that, year that changed opinion wise were, were there any opinions that you you held previous to documenting your your work that you then changed after after you had uh completed the the book oh i i don't i think that um i don't think i recognized how um much um uh, my family meant to me and how much that relationship influenced uh the pressure I feel to be Mormon. I don't think that my parents are specifically pressuring me to be Mormon or that they would, you know, um, not speak to me again if I chose not to be Mormon. But at the same time, looking at the way that you were raised and the culture that you were raised within uh, and this whole idea of an eternal families, um, I think that, uh, that I began to see what I was, the story that I was being taught my whole life and how that story affected my choices. And then on the other hand, you know, I feel like I, uh, the other story that I had been taught my whole life, which was this idea that I would, you know, find the one that he would be Mormon, that would be married in the Mormon temple. Um, I feel like I, I, in the process of writing the book, let go of my need to be married to another Mormon in a Mormon temple. And, um, you know, it, I still struggle with it, but, I, you know, I don't want my testimony to hinge upon an imaginary man that will somehow either, you know, somehow arrive and then I'll be happily Mormon, or uh, if he doesn't arrive, then I'll leave the church be Mormon. You know, I want it to be about my own relationship to truth. That that sounds like a pretty big shift from you know a standard, I guess, Molly Mormon way of thinking. That's that's pretty big. Yeah, that was a that was a good one to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess moving forward, you can hand them the book, and then if they come back, then you you know you can go from there. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elma, uh, what's what's next? Uh, well, I, um, I, uh, I've been going on a lot, you know, there's interest in, um, developing something either for television or film out of the, the book. And, and that to me is very intriguing. Um, you know, and then I also feel like, um, I spent so much time kind of, it's like I did, I had all these experiences and then I spent two years. I don't want to spend 
the next, the immediate future now writing them in another medium. <laughs> I, I would much rather just go out and have new experiences uh, and sort of fill the well because I, I don't feel like I have much to say anymore. <laughs> I've said it all. <laughs> um, so I hope that that is next. And, and, um, uh, and then we shall see about uh, the TV film side of things and where that goes. Wow, we'll have to watch that with interest. Well, Elna, the book is The New York Regional Singles Halloween Dance, published by Penguin. Um, the New York, hold on, what is it? <laughs> I, I mess, it up, mess it up, too. The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. That's right, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. I highly recommend the book. It's a it's a, a great journey that you, you take us on, and um, I think I'll be sending some copies out for my, my Christmas list. Um Elna, thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, like always, the conversation continues at mormonexpression.com. You can uh, find the website there and send us an email, or you can call at 801-906-6722. The email address is mail at mormonexpression.com. Mm-hmm.